An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I got to play golf on Friday, uh, which is a good thing. I don't get to do that as often as I once did. Uh, After kids arrived, I found uh, that golf uh, is taking a lower priority. Uh, When I was younger, I got to play a lot. I worked for a country club uh, when I was in college, and so I played uh, a lot of golf and got decent, so where I don't embarrass myself most of the time when I go out to play. But I haven't played in a while. And I went out on Friday with some friends, and we're all extremely competitive people and all uh, quite out of practice. Uh, So that's a funny combination. Uh, None of us are very good, but we all want to just totally destroy one another on the course. And we made the bad mistake of uh, playing a course up in the Catskills called The Monster. So, you know, if you're out of practice, you want to go play a long course called The Monster. That's really good for the ego. And uh, so we're out there, and we're competing against one another, and a couple of the guys were having a rough, rougher day than me, uh, but probably my closer friend among the four of us it was just a stroke or two ahead of me coming down the stretch, and I desperately wanted to beat him. And so we're just a couple holes away, and I, I hit my ball into the rough on the left side of the fairway, and everyone else had hit their ball kind of over a hill, in the right rough, and they were kind of out of view as I got to my ball, and it was the worst lie. I know some of you aren't golfers, but I'll try to describe here. It's it's just my ball's laying in just a big bunch of grass. It's going to be a terrible uh, uh, lie to try to hit from, and I'll admit, I know that I've got a couple strokes to make up on my friend. There's a part of me that thought, I'm going to move my ball. This is unfair. I landed in this big patch of grass, so I didn't, though. I, I, I managed to refrain myself, um, and I hit a terrible shot. It went about 10 yards, went out into the fairway. And then I managed to hit a much better shot and get up. And then I looked over, and I realized that none of them have seen any of this happening. And maybe some of you can already imagine what's going through my head. Uh, first of all, I was tempted to move my ball. Then I hit a terrible shot, but no one saw it. So there's no reason to count it because no one saw it. And I got to the end, and I totaled up. And I, this time, uh, fortunately, I added up all of the strokes as I had for the whole round, and um, I lost by just a couple of strokes and have regretted in some ways that I didn't uh, shave a few strokes off my round. It is tempting for us in a lot of ways in life, even if you don't play golf, even if you're not into sports, there's all kinds of ways in life in which we're tempted to tell what we might think of as just little lies, you know, just just fudge the truth just a little bit. Just exaggerate a little bit in our favor. We're going to talk today about the importance of honesty and telling the truth. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Uh, one of the verses that was my favorite was the one that Randy just read for us from Proverbs 24. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. 
And that's the title for our message today. I apologize in advance to those of you who were expecting a message on intimacy or sexuality or kissing. Uh, I'm sure I'm well qualified to give a fantastic message about any of those topics. Um, and I can say that easily with my wife not here today. Uh, but we're going to talk about honesty. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. A lot of times when we think about telling the truth, we're thinking mainly about reporting on something that has already happened and reporting in an accurate way. How many strokes did you have on that hole? Or we're thinking about describing something as it really is and being honest about something the way it really is today. But there's another element to truth-telling, to honesty, and that's what we're going to focus on more today, and it's more forward-looking, and that is keeping our promises. So once we've committed ourselves to something, are we going to stay true to what we said we would do? That's where we're going to focus today. Jesus gives these clear words from Matthew chapter 5, which we just heard, from the Sermon on the Mount. It's very early in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about a number of topics where he says, you've heard it said. He describes something that they knew from the Old Testament. And then he sort of reinterprets that principle in light of God's emerging kingdom. And this is the third time Jesus has done that in that message, and he's now talking about the importance of keeping our word. In Matthew 5, at the very beginning of that scripture that was read, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Apparently, uh, back at that time, and it's not that um, different from today, People had a hard time telling the truth. And so one of the practices that people got into was making oaths to sort of assure that they were telling the truth. So if they wanted to sort of reinforce that, yeah, I'm really serious this time, they would make an oath. Sometimes you hear people say things like this today. I swear to God. uh, Let God strike me with lightning if I'm not telling you the truth. Uh, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Uh, Even when people take an oath before uh, a courtroom. Uh, they, they put a hand on, on the Bible. We see this in, at inaugurations and other things. And so I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when people make a big deal about, oh, I swear to God I'm telling the truth, I get more suspicious. Is anybody like me? I hear somebody going overboard to convince me that they're telling the truth. In some ways it just raises my skepticism about everything they say. But that's what Jesus was talking about. And then he raises the bar for truthfulness. He says in verse 34, but I tell you, okay, some people talk about these oaths that they take, they swear to the Lord. He says, I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So while people in Jesus' day knew that if they would make an oath to the Lord, that it had to be kept, what the practice was, was to swear by something that was just a little lower than swearing by God. So if you swore by God's name, you know that people would expect you to keep your promise. But there were some elaborate debates and dialogues among the scholars about oaths that were made to something just less than God. So people would swear by heaven or by God's throne or by the city of Jerusalem and therefore feel as if since they hadn't invoked the name of God in their oath, 
they could be justified if they decided later not to keep their word. It's a little bit like, you know, a young kid with his fingers crossed behind his back as if somehow that means that you don't have to tell the truth or you can make a promise and later decide to break it and it's all okay. That's the sort of silliness, ridiculousness that Jesus is talking about. But Jesus points out that you can't avoid making a promise in the presence of God. Every word that you speak is spoken in the presence of God. Everything on earth belongs to him. As John Stott says, however hard you try, you cannot avoid some reference to God, for the whole world is God's world, and you cannot eliminate him from any part of it. So it's not like you can put God in some compartment where you can call on God, invoke his name in a pledge at certain moments, but at other times sort of leave him out in case you later want to renege on your promise. That's what Jesus is saying. If you lie, God takes it personally. So Jesus takes some practical instruction uh, and gives it to us here. In verse 37, he says, Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So that's about as simple as it can get. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you commit to something, do it. If you say something, be truthful. If you make a promise, fulfill it. If you describe something, don't exaggerate. Jesus says, do what you say and mean what you say. Be truthful in all areas all of the time. But here's the challenge. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. We could just sort of end there and go home and say, well, that's, that's about as easy as it gets. If you make a promise, keep it. But it's not that easy. I mean, we're up against a pretty serious challenge. One of the challenges that we face is that we live in a world where dishonesty is sort of expected. We just sort of anticipate that in a lot of areas of life, we're going to encounter people who aren't telling the truth. There's some statistics that are pretty phenomenal here. A New York Times article said that 91% of people confess that they regularly don't tell the truth. 36% say they lie about important matters. 86% lie to their parents, so kids. 75% lie to their friends. 73% to siblings. 69% to spouses. Sociologists tell us that we either hear or see 300 lies every day. Actually, it's 200, but see how easy it is? I mean, you can just, just, anyone can do this. With dishonesty all around us, here's some of the reasons why I think it's important for us to live truthfully. One of them is that dishonesty undermines trust in our relationships, and every good relationship is built on trust. When we stretch the truth or don't keep our word, a little break in our trust with other people begins to develop, and that can grow and become even more wide. Not that long ago, Orchard Group, I worked for a group called Orchard Group. We helped to start new churches here in New York and the Northeast, but then uh, some other uh, urban settings around the country. And uh, just not that long ago, we moved our office just a few blocks from Fifth Avenue to Broadway, but I needed to find somebody to help move our office equipment and furniture. And so I was contacting some Uh, moving companies and trying to get some estimates. And I talked to this guy on the phone at one of the companies, and it sounded like they were going to do the job for us just the right time. The price was good. He said it was going to cost $400. And so we had talked several times on the phone and gone over details and outlined all of the items that were in our office and stuff that needed to be moved. And, And again, he gave me the quote of the price was going to be $400. And so it was time for him to send over the contract, for me to sign it and send it back and lock this thing down. 
And I got the contract in my inbox, and it says $600. Now, I'm skeptical enough, I mean, because this kind of thing happens all the time, you know. I just assumed that they were trying to pull a fast one, you know. If they can get me to sign a contract for $600, they're going to get me to sign a contract. So I gave them the benefit of the doubt. I called and left a message. And I said, look, there must have been some kind of oversight or honest mistake here, but the contract said $600. We talked about $400. Seconds later, in my inbox, new contract, $400. So, you know, it's hard for us to, I think, trust other people in negotiations with with others interpersonally because we sort of suspect that almost everybody's going to try to to pull one on us if they can. It's one thing to expect that in engaging in business transactions, but that kind of thing doesn't work in our families, in our friendships, with our co-workers, with our church family. If we're going to have trust and we're going to have happy and healthy relationships, we have to be people who keep our word. Jesus also says, your yes be yes, your no be no, but then he says, anything other than that, anything beyond that comes from the evil one. I think that's a second reason, or sort of pointing to a second reason why it's so important for us to be people who tell the truth, and that is dishonesty is contrary to the character of God. God is a commitment keeper. He's never broken a promise. Numbers chapter 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And then the question is raised, does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? On the other hand, Satan is described as the father of lies. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In Proverbs chapter 6, there's a list of things that God hates, that he despises. And two of those seven things are a lying tongue and a false witness. So dishonesty undermines our relationships with other people, but it also runs counter to the character of God. And so we've got our challenge uh, cut out for us in this world where we expect dishonesty all around us to try to live as people who tell the truth. I want to talk about a couple of specific challenges we face. One of them is the challenge of keeping our promises even when they seem insignificant. Luke chapter 16 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. When you start to justify a little dishonesty in some small insignificant area of life, you crack the door open to much bigger uh, breaches of trust, breaking of confidence with other people in the future. A lot of times we think about lies and people who tell tell lies or, or gross indiscretions. We think about things like the Bernie Madoff scandal or these other Ponzi schemes where we look at them and think, I could never do anything like that. I could never lie. I could never deceive people that way. And yet if you go back to the very beginning and you ask, how did that start? Well, most of the time, those kinds of things started with somebody deciding that they were going to not keep their word on something that seemed very insignificant, something that seemed so small. Think about a lot of the the little lies that we tell or hear on a daily basis. No, 
that dress doesn't like make you look fat. Yes, I'll, I'll call you later for lunch. Uh, the check is in the mail. I'll, I'll pay you back, I promise. It was broken when I got it. It wasn't my fault. I got to go. I got to call on the other line. I'm sorry. I'll admit I have uh, used that one. We're almost there. I can't work today. <clears throat> I'm sick. I'll just take a minute of your time. Yes, it's my natural color. My mother's only staying for a few days. You won't even know she's here. Okay, we say these kinds of things, or we hear these kinds of things all the time, and they seem insignificant, and maybe even little promises that we make at home. Things like, this is the year we're going to take a big vacation, and then you don't. Or, yes, I'm going to make it to every soccer game, every concert this season, and then you can't. Or, I'm going to get home before dinner, and so we can play catch. And then you don't. You know, kids, of all people, are very easily bruised by broken promises. They're naive enough to think that our yes means yes, and our no means no. And these things may seem insignificant, but when we don't keep our word on things that are small and seem to us to be insignificant, We're just opening the door for things that could become much more dangerous in the future. Every time a casual commitment is broken, an incremental amount of damage is done. Credibility is diminished. Trust is eroded. People feel devalued. Relationships are strained. And God is offended. Because even though we're casual about making these promises, they're made in the presence of God and he takes them seriously. So we need to be people of our word, even when it seems insignificant, because it may not be as insignificant as it seems. Another one of the challenges for me in keeping my promises are keeping promises when we regret making them. We can probably all think of situations where we promised to something and then found out later that keeping our promise was going to be much more difficult than we thought it would be. It's going to cost more It's going to be more inconvenient. Some people make promises, vows to one another in marriage and then discover that marriage is not as easy as they thought it was going to be. Then the question comes up, am I going to keep this vow even though I regret making it? I have a really specific example that's coming to mind right now and and it's been something that I've been working with and on this week. and, and it's a little bit of an elaborate story, but I think it serves as a good example for us. Uh, we have a new church that we've helped to start uh, here in the New York metro area, not in the city, but uh, outside the city. The church was started five years ago, and it's exploded in growth. They're running about 1,200 people now. They've had to move in different facilities in order to keep up with the growth and reach out to their community. And uh, not that long ago, they realized that they needed to make another move, and, and it was going to be a more permanent one. They signed a lease for a permanent facility, and they had to have major expenses to build out this large space. And so they raised the money that they needed within their congregation. Very generous people stepped up to give. But as these things go, they got a few months into the renovation and realized that they were about a half a million dollars short on what they needed. And so they needed to find a place to borrow the money. Well, They're a relatively new church. They're five years old. Uh, Even though they've grown and they've had some generous people in their congregation, banks don't want to look at a loan to a church that doesn't have any real property. They don't own any land or anything like that. And so they were really in a tight spot trying to find a solution. 
we were able, Orchard Group was able, to help them get connected with another congregation here in New York that happened to have, and wouldn't this be nice, uh, over $500,000 as a church in their bank account. And so we helped to broker or arrange a deal where the existing congregation has been around for 100 years plus, was loaning $500,000 to this new congregation on some really nice terms. And we were excited about that. They were thrilled about it. And that agreement was reached several months ago. But part of the agreement was that when the church, by, by six months in, they would have in place what's called an account control agreement. Now, I knew nothing about this before, but basically what it is, it's a lien on cash. So they don't have any collateral, but this agreement puts up a lien on cash in their account so that if they were to stop paying back their loan, then the existing congregation could step in and take control of the bank account. Apparently, banks can do this but prefer not to do it, and so it's not easy to get banks to do it. Well, here's, what's, here's the problem. The new church has found it difficult to find uh, a way to get their existing bank to agree to put this uh, agreement in place, and so they're going to have to go to another bank. That means moving all of their vendors and all of their automatic bill payments up with another bank, which is going to be a, you know, a time-consuming endeavor. Also, they found that there are no banks within a short drive of their current location that will agree to do this. The only one that they can find that will do it is more than a half an hour drive away. And so not only do they have to move all their vendors and payment and all that stuff over, they also are going to have to drive every Sunday to deposit their money in their account and drive back. And so they don't want to do it. And they're, in, they're coming to me and saying, can you talk to this other church and get them to let us off the hook for this thing? Because I know we agreed to do it, but it's not convenient. It's going to be more costly. It's going to be time-consuming, and we don't want to do it. Now, I know that's an elaborate way of saying we find ourselves a lot of times making commitments and then discovering after the fact that keeping our commitment is going to be inconvenient, it's going to be costly, it's going to be a pain. And yet, we have no excuse. We have no reason to justify ourselves in not doing what we committed ourselves to do. And so, I know that this church will do what's right, but right now they're really having a hard time understanding why they have to do what they committed to do because it's more difficult than they expected. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says this, when you make a vow to God, and remember Jesus has made the point that every vow that we make is made in the presence of God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. So keep your promises even when you regret making them. This last one is a challenge personally for me, uh, and that is the challenge of keeping our promises even when no one else knows. Sometimes we make promises to ourselves, promises that we make in the presence of God. I'm going to change the way I'm living. I'm going to do things differently. Some examples might be things like this. We promise to wake up 30 minutes early to spend some time in prayer. We promise to start watching what we eat or exercising Every week, maybe we promise to put some controls and get rid of the movie channels, controls on the internet. 
Maybe we make some promises never to commit that particular sin again. We might promise not to raise our voice in anger at our spouse or our kids. We do these kinds of things. We make vows, and one of the problems with these kinds of commitments is that no one else hears it. No one else is there to hold us accountable. We think we make them only to ourselves. The reality is we make them between us and God, but there's no other person to hold us accountable, and so the consequences seem insignificant if we don't keep our commitment. I I like the story that I've heard uh, Tim Keller tell. Uh, Tim Keller here at Redeemer Presbyterian uh, in the city, and he said that when he um, was about three years into the life of their new church, this was 20 years ago after they got the church up and running, he came home from work one day, and his wife was out on the balcony at their apartment, and she had their wedding china, and and she had a hammer. And she was taking a piece of china and putting it on the table and smashing it with a hammer and brushing it off to the side and taking another piece of china, putting it on the table, smashing with a hammer and brushing it to the side. And he thought she'd gone crazy. He's like, what are you doing? Have you gone crazy? What's going on? And she said, I can't live with you anymore. You're a covenant breaker. And he knew instantly what she meant. He said that before the church was started, he made a covenant with his family that for a certain season, he was going to have to work 80, 90 hours a week. It was just going to be insane to try to get this church up and running. But that he was going to limit that time in their lives when he was going to work crazy hours like that for two years. And after the church was two years in, he would return to a more healthy schedule. Well, the reality is he hadn't done what he said he would do. They were now three years in, and he had just continued to work at this schedule that he said if he worked at that schedule for the rest of his life, there's no question it would have been a sin. He could commit to do it for a season, but not forever. Well, he wasn't keeping his word, and so his wife was making a great point. Now, he later realized that what she was doing was she was taking the mismatched items like the cups that didn't have a saucer anymore. Or, I mean, she was very intentional about this fit that she was throwing. It was very strategic, but he said the point couldn't have been any more clear. Here's the problem. When we make commitments that are only commitments that we make between us and God, no one else knows. There's no one there to hold us accountable. There's no one else to say, you're breaking your covenant and I'm not going to take it. And yet those promises that we make, promises that we make in the presence of God are every bit as important. God takes them every bit as seriously. I mean, Ecclesiastes says it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 5 that whenever we promise, we do so in the presence of God. And when we break that promise, we're not just lying to others or ourselves. We're really lying to him. Jesus, because he was fully human, faced the gut-wrenching choice of keeping a costly promise. God had been promising for thousands of years to send his son to save the world through his death. But when the moment of truth came in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus felt the full weight, the full consequence of keeping a costly promise. In fact, he even asked the Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, Will you let it be? If there's any other way to go about this, let's do it that way. Jesus knows what it's like to face a promise that you don't want to keep, and in the moment of truth, he became the ultimate commitment 
keeper. He kept his word. He gave his life in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we might be set free from our guilt, from our shame, and enabled to live life for all of eternity with the Father. I think it's one of the most important things for us to say when we're talking about the importance of telling the truth and living lives of honesty is that we do not keep truthfulness and honesty in our lives in order to earn God's favor. We receive God's favor by his grace through Jesus and in response to his goodness to us, we tell the truth. We keep our word. We live lives of honesty. We can't do anything to earn his favor, but by his grace we've been forgiven and called to live a life of obedience to him. In just a minute, we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate the fact that Jesus kept his word in our behalf with the practice of communion, to receive the bread that represents his body, the cup that represents his blood. I'm going to pray here, and then our uh, servers will come so that you can come to them and receive the bread and the cup as we're singing this next song. But first, let's pray. Father, we need your help uh, if we're going to be people who live lives of honesty and truth. Uh, We pray that you would empower us by your spirit uh, to overcome the challenges, the culture that we live in that sort of expects dishonesty, the temptations that we face uh, to, to cut corners, to not always keep our word. I pray that you would enable us to live lives that please you, bring honor to you. But also, Father, by living truthfully, will this community, will you let this community of believers here at Lower Manhattan Community Church be a great light in a dark world and draw people not to us because we're different, but to draw people to you because of what you've done. We thank you so much for Jesus, his sacrifice, his example. We pray these things in his name. Amen.